0: I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. We're going to continue our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It was Thanksgiving, either 1997, 1998. I don't remember for sure what year it was. Christlene and I were relatively early on in our, our, our married life. We'd gotten married in 97. It was one of those two Octobers. We'd gathered at my father's house for Thanksgiving dinner with some family. Uh, my parents are divorced, remarried. My dad had married a, a woman, my stepmom, who had three younger kids at the time. And so by that Thanksgiving, uh, her oldest son, my oldest stepbrother, was around the age of 18, and, and at that time in his life, was having some issues with anger. Things were a little bit challenging. And I remember sitting in the living room uh, just outside the kitchen, visiting with family, and suddenly hearing this scream from the kitchen and a struggle, I, I leapt up immediately, ran into the kitchen and saw my stepmom struggling with her oldest son, my stepbrother, and he was holding a, a huge kitchen knife. I, I tackled him, grabbed his arm, tackled him to the floor. One of my brothers came in right behind me and we got the knife away from him and pinned him down while we waited for the police. Needless to say, that's a memorable Thanksgiving. My question this morning is this, in the text that we're going to look at today, Jesus says these words, do not resist an evil person. So my question is, was I acting in disobedience to Jesus? Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. The passage we come to this morning is perhaps, my brother, by the way, he's evil like we're all evil. He's doing much better. We're, we're good. It's a long time ago. The passage that we are looking at this morning is perhaps one, the one passage in the Sermon on the Mount that most people immediately rush to. John Stott writes these words about this text. He says, nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctiveness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, more compelling. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is prefaced by Jesus beginning to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. His announcement that in His coming, God's kingdom was breaking into the world. A whole new order was was showing up. The future was spilling into the present. Heaven was invading the earth. I have been contending through this series that, that when the good news takes root in our hearts, when the good news takes root in a community, uh, something happens. And that something that happens is described for us here by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that something that happens is the creation of a new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity. Men and women, young and old, who have different characteristics, who have different ambitions, a different purpose, different ways of living, different behaviors. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not giving us a new law, He's not giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. It's not a new set of rules. No, rather Jesus is painting a picture of this new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity humanity being brought into being by the power of the gospel. This is what people look like, begin to look like, when we hear the good news of God's love and God's grace, when that gospel takes root in our lives, when the Spirit of God is having His way in us. We're currently in the midst of walking through six passages in the end of Matthew chapter 5, that follow immediately after Jesus said these words, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus fulfills the law in numerous ways. One of those ways is by explaining it, helping us to understand the heart of God's law, helping us to understand what God's intention and desire has always been. At these six paragraphs do precisely that. They they illustrate for us, they help explain to us the heart of God, His heart for how we should live, who we should be. It's not changing it, it's, it's explaining it. He's illustrating what life looks like when the gospel invades. Now with that all in mind, we need to remember the danger that we face when we come to these paragraphs. And that is the danger of getting lost in the details and missing the point. Uh, I've said that it's G- what Jesus says here it 's not merely about the letter of the law but the spirit of the law that a mere wooden literalistic interpretation is going to lead us to miss the point i 've argued that it 's that God cares about what 's going on in our hearts and in our minds not only externally but what 's going on internally. I have contended that that what Jesus says here is not only things that we are not to do negatively but positively how we are to live, who we are to be uh, i 've contended that this is not This is not oppressive, in fact, but it's freeing, showing us what our lives were intended to be, that when we obey God, when we submit to to God's law, we in fact become more human who God created us to be, men and women who reflect the character and image of God. And fifthly, that God's goal is not merely that we would obey these as an end in themselves, but that through being conformed into uh, men and women that look like this picture, we are drawn into deeper intimacy with God, which is His ultimate goal. With that all in mind, let's turn to our text this morning Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42. You've heard that it was said, Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I want to, in the time that we have together, do six things with you. First, I want to explain to you the Old Testament law that stands prominently in the background of everything that Jesus says here. In fact, Jesus will quote that Old Testament law. So the first, we'll look at that. Second, I want to establish for you the situation in Jesus' day, if the context into which Jesus speaks these words. Third, I, I want to spend some time considering Jesus' prohibition. Uh, and the, then fourthly, the illustrations Jesus gives us to illustrate that prohibition. That's fourth thing. Fifth, I want to zero in on the point that Jesus is making. And then lastly, I want to consider with you what obedience to Jesus, what faithfulness to Jesus will look like in our lives. So first, the Old Testament law that stands in the background. Jesus begins once again with this reference to what they have heard in the past. We read verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus here is making reference to what is called the lex talionis. It was this famous law that we encounter in numerous Old Testament passages. I'm going to read a few of them to you. Exodus 21, we read this. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Deuteronomy 19, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Imagine, parents, if we exercise discipline of our children in this way. You just gave your brother a black eye? Okay, I'll pin him down, you hit him back. Right? I mean, this is biblical. This is the lex talionis. And so, we need to understand uh, there's a number of things that we need, we need to note about this law, the law, uh, the lex talionis. First, we need to note that the law of Moses was not only a moral law, but it was also civil law. There is a distinction. For example, uh, there is nothing inherently wrong with driving your vehicle uh, at 200 kilometers an hour, for example. There's nothing morally wrong, it, nothing inherently uh, evil about that, except that. Our society has put in place here in Canada, in Alberta, uh, rules to protect society, and so they say. Uh, so it's breaking civil law. There are places on the planet I've heard where you can drive that fast with no no repercussions, right? So nothing morally wrong with it, but it's it breaks civil law. There's a distinction between moral law and civil law. We need to understand that first. Secondly, in response to the question uh, why, we need to note this: the lex talionis outlined the principle of. Exact retribution, which accomplished it, accomplished two important things. One, it defined justice. It specified that the punishment must fit the crime. It specified the punishment that the perpetrator deserved. And secondly, it restrained excess. It established a boundary to protect the perpetrator. The punishment could fit the crime, but it could not go beyond that. Many years ago, I think I was probably in junior high or maybe early high school, I remember sitting in a Harvey's restaurant in Toronto across the street from Maple Leaf Gardens with my brothers and my dad. We'd gone there, sadly not to watch the Leafs, never saw a Leaf game at Maple Leaf Gardens. We had to go to Buffalo. We could never get tickets in Toronto. But we were there to watch a uh, a track and field event at Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, One of my older brother's friends was competing and so we were there. We were sitting at Harvey's uh, having some food before the game and I'm the middle of four boys, I have younger twin brothers and an older brother, and we were there uh, being brothers. I don't remember exactly what led up to it, but at one point they had condiment bottles on the table. I squirted some ketchup and got it on my older brother's jacket. So Lex Talionis would say he should squirt me back with ketchup, but he just reacted. He grabbed the nearest bottle, happened to be vinegar, and sprayed it in my face. I don't know if you've experienced that before, but there was significant sting And I remember my dad expressed his displeasure with what my older brother did. The reality is Lex Talionis would have served me very well that day. Sure, squirt some ketchup on me rather than vinegar in the face. So so Lex Talionis defined what the perpetrator deserved, a punishment that fit the crime, but it it prevented excess. In, In the ancient world, sometimes things were brutal, right? You poke out my eye, I chop off your head. Like, that was the world... And so this law, in fact, was about justice. Third, we also need to understand this about this law, that lex talionis was given to Israel as a nation. That is, it was to be applied by the nation's judges. The law was not designed to be discharged by individuals swept up in personal vendettas. You poke out my eye, someone else will poke out your eye. It's not for me to do. It was given to the nation to their judiciary. So to sum things up with regards to this law, things we need to understand, the main main intent of this Mosaic legislation was to establish justice and control or stop excess. Lex talionis, properly applied, uh, would prevent angry and violent uh, acts of revenge. Is not a set of controls for anger and violence and revenge not needed in our world? Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, this whole tendency to wrath and anger, to retribution and retaliation is there at the very depth of human nature. It is one of the most hideous and ugly results of the fall of man and of original sin. The lex talionis is what Jesus quotes, what He references, and it stands in the background. Let's turn secondly to the situation of Jesus' day. John Stott writes this, it is almost certain that by the time of Jesus, literal retaliation for damage had been replaced in Jewish legal practice by money penalties or damages. In fact, that was likely the case far earlier. That rather than literally uh, literal retaliation, there was this monetary penalty that was paid. Nonetheless, this law, the Lex Talionis, remained part of the civil life of God's people, the civil life of Israel. Now. I want you to think with me. Remember how the religious leaders, the Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, what they were doing relative to the other laws that we have already encountered thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. They were, by and large, they were limiting the restrictions. They would see a law and they would find ways to, to limit the restrictions of the law, and then they would broaden the permissions of the law. They were making the law more doable, if you will. Uh, they were, they were focused legal, legalistically at keeping the law, but they were missing the point. So remember, when it came to murder, so long as they didn't kill anyone, they were good. didn't matter how angry or how, how violent even they were with one another. As so long as they didn't actually kill someone, they were keeping the law. When it came to adultery, as long as they weren't actually sleeping with someone else who wasn't their spouse, uh, lust was not an issue. They were keeping the law. When it came to oath or divorce, they, it, Moses had allowed divorce, and so they were just looking for what were the legitimate reasons for divorce. When it came to, to making oaths, they, they, they created formula that would allow them to, under certain circumstances, they could break their oath and still presumably be keeping the law. They were finding all these creative ways of understanding God's law, misunderstanding, misinterpreting the law. And so by Jesus' day, the lex talionis, uh, was chiefly, which was chiefly about preventing excessive retaliation or revenge, uh, we need to know that. That, that, that was what it was for, and secondly, it was to be applied by the judiciary, not by individuals, but both those fundamental aspects were now uh, avoided, ig- ignored, they were overlooked. So the question in Jesus' day w- was this. How far may my personal retaliation extend without breaking the law? That that is to miss the point of what that law was all about. What what am I allowed to do to retaliate when someone does me harm? What can I do before I'm breaking the law? By Jesus' day, this law was actually being used to justify personal revenge despite the fact that the Old Testament explicitly forbid that. In Leviticus 19, we read, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Thus, as John Stott asserts, the principle of judicial retribution was being utilized as an excuse for the very thing it was instituted to abolish, namely, personal revenge. Let's look thirdly now at Jesus' prohibition. Into that context, Jesus speaks these words, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. How are we to understand that stunning and sweeping statement, assertion by Jesus? It would seem that in one sentence, Jesus has forbidden the use of force of any kind, physical or otherwise, in every situation. Do not resist an evil person. This text has been taken by some as the basis for an uncompromising pacifism. The Russian uh, writer, author, Leo Tolstoy came to believe that. He believed that there should be no soldiers, no police officers, and no magistrates because each of those professions, people in those professions, do exactly what Jesus said we're not to do. That is, they resist an evil person. Others have concluded that at least police officers and the judiciary are necessary, but they have also concluded that Christians should not be engaged in those professions for that reason. Our own MB Confession of Faith, Article 13 on love and non-resistance, says this, we view violence in its many different forms as contradictory to the new nature of the Christian. That would, of course, mean that what I did... And the story I shared with you when I began my message was wrong, that it was contrary to what Jesus would have had me do, unless I can find some creative way of wiggling out. Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. How are we to understand that? What does it look like to be faithful to Jesus at this point? I I want to be sensitive and respectful towards those who who may disagree with how I'll answer this. I think this is a a challenging question, and by no means do I think I have the corner on the truth, but I do believe that it is exceptionally easy to misread what Jesus is saying, to to take these words out of their appropriate context and, and thus go astray in understanding them. So let me remind you of the context in which Jesus speaks these words. The Sermon on the Mount, I have contended, is not a new law. It's not a new set of rules. It's not the old law cranked up, the old law on steroids. Jesus here is painting a picture of gospelized humanity. Describing the character of men and women, boys and girls, teenagers in whom the gospel has taken root, describing their new characteristics, describing their new ambitions, describing their new ways of living, their new behaviors, describing what happens when the gospel takes root and the Holy Spirit is having His way. That's what's going on in, in the sermon. Jesus here in these six paragraphs that we're walking through, Jesus is illustrating how the gospelized behave in various aspects of life, in various areas. What does the life of the future look like in the midst of this broken world? What is the kingdom life lived out now in the midst of brokenness of this world? What does it look like? In this passage and the four preceding it and the next one that we'll come to next week, Jesus is providing six illustrations of what that life looks like. But He is not attempting to provide us with a new set of rules, a new law. He's painting a picture. Thus, we need to be careful about a literalistic, wooden interpretation of what Jesus is saying. And that's not suggesting that we look for some creative way to wiggle around the hard things Jesus says. Not at all, and I trust that you will see that as we move forward. Fourth, I want us to look together at the four illustrations, the four examples that Jesus provides for us in this text to describe for us, to help us understand what it means when He says, do not resist an evil person. So the fourthly, we'll do that. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And then what follows, Jesus illustrates that. He provides examples of what that looks like to not resist an evil person. There are three if anyone statements, followed by a fourth statement that takes a bit of a different form. But all four stand together, all four illustrate what Jesus is saying, what He is teaching us. These four examples come from daily life for His original hearers. And and we need to note that this list is not exhaustive. Jesus doesn't attempt to be exhaustive. The first example, the first illustration concerns a slap to the right cheek. Now, we need to understand that this is not only an act of physical violence, but perhaps more so, it's a gross insult in that culture to slap someone across the face. It was uh, a, an act that was incredibly disrespectful. And what Jesus says is that if that happens to you as a gospelized woman or man, that you are to turn the other cheek. That is, you are intentionally to put yourself in that place of vulnerability. You are to prepare yourself to bear another blow, to bear another insult. Second example, second illustration comes from the law courts. Jesus says if someone is suing you for your shirt or your tunic, that was the sort of the inner garment that people wore, that that you are to give them your your coat, your cloak, your outer garment. Uh, it's important for us to understand that the courts, Jewish courts, would never, ever uh, take your cloak from you. Your cloak was an incredibly important uh, part of your attire. It kept you warm at night, and especially for poor people, uh, they would often only have one cloak. And so that could never be removed from you by the judiciary. Someone could sue you for your tunic, for your shirt, your your, your clothes, but they can never take your coat. Jesus says if someone sues you for your tunic, for your shirt, give them your coat as well. And if we think about that, that would, that would actually leave you nude, which in that culture was horribly dishonorable. Jesus says, give them your cloak as well. Third example comes from a legal practice of the day where Roman soldiers were uh, were allowed to commandeer someone to carry their baggage their luggage for a, a distance of a mile Jesus says if that happens to you gospelized people should walk with them should carry that luggage an extra mile carry it a second mile go a mile beyond what was required and fourth, Jesus says, it's a fourth is an example about, uh, about giving and lending. Jesus says, Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Does that mean what it seems to be saying? If anyone asks, as a person in whom the gospel has taken root, you're simply just to give every time? Every panhandler? Every beggar, every time someone calls Sunrise and asks for help, every, every relative who asks for money, every time one of your, your kids comes to you and says, hey, pops, can I have some money? Jesus says, give. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. R- really, Jesus? I want to turn fifthly now and zero in on the point that Jesus is making. What is Jesus saying? Before I answer that question, let me read a quote from John Stott. He says this, However conscientious we may be in our determination not to sidestep the implications of Jesus' teaching, we still cannot take the four little cameos with wooden, unimaginative literalism. We, We need to think this through to understand the point Jesus is making. And I want to I wanna ask you a question from one of the illustrations Jesus makes, the one where he says a Roman soldier can stop you and commandeer you to carry his luggage, right? So in that day, a Roman soldier could stop you and say, hey, carry my baggage for a mile. So think about that. I checked on Google. Uh, most people could walk a mile in 15 to 22 minutes. Let's assume you're fast, okay? Let's assume you can do it in 15 minutes, uh, even carrying heavy baggage. So a soldier stops you. And you've got to go, so you're going to have to walk a mile and then a mile back. That's a major inconvenience at minimum. Safe to say that? Like maybe you're on your way to work and you, you couldn't just text your boss, hey, I'm going to be a little late. Maybe you're on your way to family dinner. Everyone's waiting. The lamb's getting cold. Where, where are you? Right? Maybe your spouse is expecting you at home. And you're, you're gone minimum half an hour. Not, not to mention you get back and you're a sweaty mess. Right? That, that, that's, that's what's involved here. Major, major wrinkle in your day. What well, Jesus says, that you are to go a second mile. Okay, you say, I'll do that. And so you get your Fitbit on or your pedometer, and you grab that soldier's stuff, and you start hoofing it. And you you pass the first mile and you're like, okay, Jesus said two miles. So you get to that second mile marker, not a step further. You drop that, turn around, and you, you leave. And it's clear to that soldier that you're you're pretty cheesed. Let me ask you this do you think you've obeyed what Jesus is saying here? You went the extra mile. But you missed the point. You missed the point. Here's the point. Again, with the lex talionis as the background, Jesus is speaking about how we respond to those who do evil to us. He's speaking about revenge, retaliation. To those, how do we respond to those who inconvenience us? How do we respond to those who insult us? How do we respond to those who take from us. What Jesus is saying is that for those in whom the gospel has taken root, for gospelized human beings, there is simply no place for retaliation. There's no place for revenge. That, that we are called to a selflessness that, that is to characterize us as beatitude people. That, that a life of the gospelized means self-sacrifice that display, displaces payback. We're no longer men and women intent on fighting for our honor, for our rights. We instead respond in all of these circumstances of life when someone does us evil. We are to be those who respond with love and with grace and with selflessness, with generosity. When someone insults us and slaps us in the face we respond with love we prepare we're prepared to bear another insult another blow when you're sued for your tunic we don't worry about standing up for what our rights are we will even give away our cloak we we will be wronged in order to love and show grace when you're commandeered by by those in authority to do something that we might not want to do, something that messes with our freedom, something that messes with what we want, we're called to generously submit, to supply and even to go beyond what is required. When someone asks for something that is yours, we are to be men and women who don't cling to our stuff, but who, with generosity, serve and selflessly give. The, the principle is the principle of love. How can I love this person? How can I show love and grace to this person who has done me evil? How can I care for them? What is for their best? Now I would suggest that that is an important question. What is most loving in some situations might not look like what we might conclude. Sometimes, I mean, with our children, if we love them, we discipline them. They often don't feel loved in those moments, but that is, that is love. And so the principle is love. How do I respond with love? Now, apart from the transforming work of the gospel in our lives, we don't do any of these things. None of these are natural reactions I don't know if you've ever been hit in the face, but my natural reaction is not to say, hey, hit me again. Right? You can come out swing. It. Like our natural unsanctified response is not this. This is the work of the gospel in us. We we naturally want to fight back. We we naturally wanna hurl insults back. We naturally want to stand up for our rights. We naturally want wanna do our own things, stick to our own agendas, not be inconvenienced by someone else's demands. We we want to hold on to our stuff. What Jesus is teaching us, what Jesus is describing here, the picture he is painting is a, a picture of our lives that are free from seeking revenge free from seeking to retaliate in kind, uh, that our lives are, are to be aimed at overcoming evil with good, with, with love, that our lives are governed by love and mercy, not by our honor, not by our legal rights, not by our agendas, not by our stuff. Our lives are governed by self-giving, self-sacrificial love. We follow a crucified Lord. Jesus put others first. Jesus put us first. And he suffered. He suffered out of love for us. Every time, every time I read the story of Jesus' crucifixion, I marvel. I marvel at Christ. Because as he hangs there in utter agony physically, just think of the physical agony, he is being tortured. Hanging on a cross. And the religious leaders and others mock Him. They they mock Him brutally. They say, we read this later on in Matthew's Gospel, He saved others, but He can't save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue Him now if He wants Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. They mock Him. And the mockery is brutal, and the irony is incredible. He saved others, but He can't save Himself. Why didn't you come down from the cross? And in the face of that, in in the face of the physical agony and the spiritual agony that was going on, and in the face of the mockery, you know, Jesus could have come down. Jesus could have come down, but He stayed. He chose not to save Himself so that He would instead save us. He could have come down, but He didn't. He chose to stay for you and me. He chose to stay upon that cross so that we might be saved. And it is this Jesus that we follow. It is into His likeness that Jesus is transforming us. The disciple Peter says this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. We follow a crucified Messiah, one who out of love for us suffered. And that's who He is shaping us to be, men and women who will suffer out of love for others. Who, who will not worry about our own rights, our own reputation, our own honor, our own agenda, our own stuff, but who will say, Jesus, empower me to love like you did, to to bear the hits, to sacrifice, to give. To do whatever is most loving for that person in front of me. And it won't always look the same, but that's the principle. What does it look like for me to love this person? What does obedience to Jesus look like? I think it's so important that we don't absolutize this. That, that we don't come from this text and say, okay, there is never ever any circumstance where I or anyone or any, any body should resist evil. Jesus resisted those who wanted to stone to death the woman caught in adultery. Right? Jesus tells us in the context of the church that if a brother or sister sins against you, we are to go to them and confront them. Call them to repentance. That is a form of resistance. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when, when Peter was led astray and, and he, he withdrew from table fellowship with Gentiles because Jews had come and, and they were still sorting out this whole Jew-Gentile thing and Peter was drawn into that, Peter says that he res, or sorry, Paul says he resisted Peter. In fact, the same word that Jesus uses here, do not resist an evil person, is precisely the word that Paul uses, I resisted Peter. He called Peter to obedience. See, God cares for justice. God's desire is that good would be done in the world. And that means that evil needs to be resisted. And God has instituted authorities to do that. Scripture is, I think, clear on that even though those authorities in our experience often will let us down and perhaps sometimes become perpetrators of evil. Jesus was not forbidding the administration of justice, but prohibiting that we take it into our own hands. He's speaking about who we are individually. His purpose was and is to forbid that His followers practice revenge and retaliation that we would respond in kind when evil is done to us. John Stott puts it well when we think of the key principle that Jesus is giving us. That principle is love, the selfless love of a person who when injured refuses to satisfy himself by taking revenge, but studies instead the highest welfare of the other person and of society and determines his reactions accordingly. He will certainly never hit back returning evil for evil, for he has been entirely freed from personal animosity. Instead, he seeks to return good for evil. Thus, the only limit to the Christian's generosity will be a limit which love itself may impose. When someone asks for money, love sometimes means there's a limit, right? Sometimes the help that person needs is not money. Maybe maybe they need friendship. Maybe there are other ways that we need to, to love them and serve them for their welfare. Love is the principle that drives our responses. Love for others, our, the desire for their good is to, response, uh, is to govern our response. H- hate returned for hate. Violence for violence will only lead to greater brokenness and misery for both the instigator and the retaliator. Only love is capable of turning an enemy into a friend. Jesus here is speaking about retaliation, revenge, about our own attitudes toward the one who insults us, our our own heart towards those who step on our toes, our own response to those who take advantage of us. And in those situations, I am to respond selflessly. I am to be like Jesus. I am to be one who bears insults, who suffers out of love. Nineteenth century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon coined these arresting words with regards to this text. He said this, we are to be the anvil when bad men are the hammers. We are to be the anvil when bad men are the hammers. Those in whom the gospel has taken root, those in whom the Spirit of God is having His way are those who do not respond to evil in kind. When insulted, when struck, when sued, when inconvenienced, when taken advantage of, we don't respond in kind. Rather, we respond out of love and out of care for the good of the other. We, we suffer insult. We suffer violence. We suffer loss. We suffer like Jesus suffered for us, out of love. We are the anvil when bad men are the hammers. Amen.